our country speaks English <laughs> rather than German or Japanese or Russian or all the other people that would really like for us to speak their language um, because of guys like this that, that fought bravely. Well, we are today changing our series, um, our breaking from our series, and I just wanted to share with you uh, in that in that video, you hear a clip from, uh, it's actually January the 20th, 1961, John F. Kennedy, and Brother Al's going to correct me on this, the 35th president. Brother Al knows all the numbers. So the 35th president uh, of the United States in his inaugural address, he made the very famous statement that you heard at the very end of that clip. He says, and so my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. I'm, I believe if he were alive today, um, John F. Kennedy would be very disappointed that we've raised a culture of people that are exactly the opposite of that. We're just a little over 51% of Americans now are pushing the government to get subsidy to them rather than provide for our country. And uh, that's a problem for us. Um, and so as Christians, I want us to kind of have a concept today of what it means to be an American and what it means to serve our country as Christians. Um, and if you've served in the military, you've, you've given probably the greatest sacrifice ever. You're willing to, to offer yourself up and put your life on the line to defend our country. But those of us back home have a service opportunity as well. I love the idea of serving your country. The only thing greater that you can do is to serve our Savior with a passion and a commitment with love and sacrifice. And that's what I want us to talk about this morning for just a few minutes. What can you do for your country today um, to serve your country? I want to take you to a simple passage, Matthew chapter 5. It's very familiar for most of you if you've raised in church, if you've been around church people at all. Um, this will ring a little bell for you and you go, oh, I know that story. I know that message of Christ. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13 Jesus says these words, I'm going to read from the New American Standard for you, and I think that's what's on our screen this morning. He says to, to the people, New American Standard reads this way, you, mark things in your Bible, I'd like you to circle that word, um, you, you should mark things in your Bible, my opinion, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, our challenge to you this morning, I'm really just going to talk to you about the first half of that message about salt, but I, I saw this Peanuts cartoon where Peppermint Patty, who's one of my favorites, by the way, I love Peppermint Patty's little sassy attitude. And, um, her struggle in school reminds me so much of me. If you, if you just ever, ever want fun, just Google Peppermint Patty school. Um, her school, her school um, clips are, are uh, just tons of funny ones where she's, she's all the time falling asleep in class and um, she's asking, can she not take the test because she doesn't know the information, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, uh, but Peppermint Patty is having a talk with Charlie Brown and, and uh, She's talking with Charlie Brown. She said, uh, guess what, Chuck? The first day of school, and I get sent to the principal's office, and it was your fault, Chuck. He said, my fault? How could it be my fault? Why do you say everything is my fault? 
She said, you're my friend, aren't you, Chuck? You should have been a better influence on me. And that's, that, there's, a, there's a, an issue here, though, that people are supposed to be able to influence other people. And good people should become good influences. Um, I read this quote by A.W. Tozer. It's one of my favorites. I've tweeted it and sent it out multiple times. I'd love for you all to tweet it out sometime this week uh, just as part of our service message here. But the only thing that can resist a tremendous, the tremendous powers of evil in this world today is the Holy Spirit's release through Spirit-filled men. Spirit-filled men and women can change, turn the tide on evil. That's the only thing that changes evil. Um, is spirit-filled men and women. See, we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood and all the crazy things that are going on in our society. I'm, gonna, I'm working on a series now uh, about the world and the church and uh, kind of the conflict that's existing between that. That conflict's going to be elevated. I'm going to show you a video clip in a little bit here to help you see some of that. But I think we're coming to the... I think some of the, the issues of all that are coming to a head in our culture. Um, and the only thing that can address the evil that's in our culture is spirit-filled men and women. And so when Jesus says, we are the salt of the earth, I want you to understand, if you, if you read this text, he says, we are the, you are the salt of the earth. Now, let me just tell you, first of all, when he said you in the Greek, he's using a plural term. King James is the only place you can find this, by the way, because um, it's the old English had a plural for you, and it's ye. You remember in the King James when you were growing up, you had the ye, ye are the salt of the earth? Well, the ye, Y-E, means multiples of us, not just one person. He said, I'm talking to all of you, and these are his true disciples that he's talking about. So when he says ye in the Greek, or you in the English, um, he means you, it's, <laughs> the old southern way to say it is you all. That's what he's saying, you all. Y'all the perfect translation for Justin. Justin's translation says, y'all are the salt of the earth. Okay? Um, but he means his true disciples. Now, who are, they, who are those guys? Okay? That's the little band. I want you to think about who's with him. That's a little band of odd, ADHD, theologically inept misfits that follow him around. That's us. <laughs> okay? It's a bunch of people going, who? Huh? What did he say? I don't know. And they're all the time, when he teaches something, when Jesus teaches something, they're all the time going, when they get back to, you know, around the campfire night, they go, uh, could you explain that? Because I don't get a, what so or so and see, what is that all about? They're really, that's us. They're odd misfits with attention deficit disorder and, you know, learning disabilities and, and uh, they were fishermen. You know, they were seasoned, hardened fishermen, and, and they were tax collectors and farmers. I mean, these guys, these guys really were just literally the salt of the earth. They were, they were the core people of this community. Jesus pulled them together, this little band of odd guys who were theologically inept and very misfitted, and he said, you're salt. Now, the reason the text is as short as it is is because Jesus is talking to people in his day. If somebody calls you salt today, you go, huh? Oh, what do you mean salt? Okay? It doesn't make any sense. In his day, it was enormously obvious to them exactly what he's saying. So let me give you a couple of, couple of clues about that. Uh, salt is actually a payment. It's valuable. And Roman soldiers were paid in bags of salt. Roman soldiers, think about this. 
You, you're fighting for your country. Okay? You wear the uniform. You got the, you got all the swords and you're in, you're in these, you know, training ops and classes and, and you're going out to whoop on these other nations so our Roman world can get bigger and bigger and you go beat up a bunch of people. When you get back home, man, they're like, hey, good job. Here's a bag of salt. A what? But man, salt in this day, was extremely valuable. It was actually a form of payment. Um, we still say today, some, well, you know, he, he's worth his salt. You know where that came from? The Romans. The Romans would look, when a guy would get a bag of salt for his, for his uh, work in the military, when he would get his bag of salt, the guy would go, man, that guy's worth every bit of that salt. That's where it came from. When we say that phrase, you know, worth his salt, meaning he's worthy. Jesus wanted you to know that that salt was, or he knew that salt was valuable, and he wants his, you all, y'all, to know you're valuable. You're very valuable to him, to the kingdom, to the world. You are the salt of the earth. You're valuable here. You have great value. Great value. The, the Latin word salarium is the word we get salary from, by the way. Um, and saline and all that, you can kind of connect all those dots there. Um, but uh, many of Jesus' followers would have instantly realized Jesus was saying, "So we're we're like pay, we're valuable. We're like payment." It's exactly what he's talking about. Um, the other thing that made salt extremely valuable is the diet of the day was horribly bland. Okay, not I, I was just thinking through this while I was typing this all out for my final notes a couple of days ago. And uh, there's a little place by my house called Mother Mary's, a little breakfast place, breakfast and lunch, great little place, mom and pop's thing, and I like those. I love going to mom and pop's restaurants because my mom and dad own one, and so you get to know all the people back there and cooks and all that, and you hear all them arguing in the kitchen like we used to, and you go, oh, yeah, remember when we used to have those arguments? And it's hot back here. Turn on the air conditioner. We're not turning on the air conditioner. It's too much money. And I'm listening to the owners argue about not running the air conditioner for the waitresses. And I'm going, man, I remember those days. So clear. So clear from my dad going, we're not running that for y'all. But here's the thing. It's, it's great to, to, I had this great breakfast there that morning. And uh, they, they do grits and eggs and bacon and all the stuff I like. And so I had this really unhealthy but good breakfast. And uh, it was awesome. I came up here and studied for quite a while, and then I decided I needed lunch, and I went down here to Margarita's and uh, spent a little time down there with, uh, with my friends at Margarita's and had this great lunch. And everything tasted awesome. You know that in Jesus' day, it wasn't that way at all. It was a lot more like what happens in Romania when we used to go to camp up in the mountains of Romania. And Gabe will remember this because he was in the earliest trips of that. Oh my goodness, he, you were in the lower camp. Um, you, didn't get the, you didn't get the chef that they hired for us later. In the early days of the Romania camp, when we'd go there for about 10 or 12 days, sometimes 15 days, um, they, they just literally had this giant pot in the middle of the camp They'd dump a bunch of river water in it. Then they would go collect stuff off the hills, the mountains, and put it in there to season it, and they would call it soup. And it was just literally herbs and grass and maybe a few mushrooms here and there, but it was this giant pot of water that when you got it in your bowl, it looked like a little bowl of water, and you might have a little piece of something green floating around in it, and it had almost no flavor to it at all. And they called that lunch. And then for breakfast, we had bread. And if we were really fortunate at breakfast, they would put a spread on it that's called 
lard. Okay? They would take lard and spread it on your bed. I know it's making your mouth water right now, isn't it? Make it they put this lard on there. Now, on an amazing day, you could actually get a cucumber in your lard. Okay? So for breakfast, you got one piece of very stout bread. Very stout, like you could play football with this bread, and we did some. We got in trouble for doing that one year because it was cool because when we were helping unload the van, we were like, hey, these are like footballs, and we started throwing them. And of course, very precious to them. To us, it was just footballs, so we got in trouble about that. But, but for breakfast, we had bread, lard, good breakfast, great breakfast. Some, breakfast, some days it was just bread, by the way. Bread, lard, maybe a cucumber. Now, you were living high on that day, Right? Then we had lunch. Lunch was the big pot of water, something in it. And we would get soup and bread. Bread and soup, okay? You could use the water to help make the bread a little more able to be chewed up, right? Then there was supper time. Guess what we had for supper? Bread and maybe lard. If there's enough lard to go around, we're going to use lard both times, okay? Maybe not. Maybe not. Now, some young people are going, what is lard? Ask your parents, and it'll make you sick to your stomach when you figure out we ate a whole bunch of that at camp. But I'm telling you, 15 days in a row, that's what we would eat. 12 days in a row, breakfast. And it was funny because year after year, I'd take these students, and I would explain to them, Here's, don't go to breakfast and go, hey, what's for breakfast? That's an American thing. Hey, what's for breakfast? We change out our breakfasts. They don't do that over there. What's for breakfast? Bread. What's for lunch? Bread. What's for supper? Bread. Right? The culture Jesus is in is exactly the same, only a little, little removed from that. And so all the stuff they would have to eat was very, very bland. If you had salt and you could season anything you were eating, even if it was just a little bit on the, the flat bread they would make, it just enhanced it. And so it became a seasoning and it made that which was very bland tolerable. Tolerable. You remember a few years ago when we were going to the Dominican Republic real regular during the summers and I, I had this little experiment in my head for us to do and, and some of us tried it. And we did the rice and beans. We're going to eat rice and beans for a week. Seven days. Just rice and beans, nothing else. Because that's in the Dominican, that's what they do. Breakfast is rice or beans. Lunch, rice or beans. Supper, rice or beans. That's what they do. And uh, it's not real fancy. And so remember we tried that and, and everybody, I mean, you were trying to spice up that by the, by Wednesday, you're just like, there's got to be another way to do rice and beans. And, and I mean, some of us gave, you know, by Thursday and Friday, some of you were giving up. You're like, I can't do another day of rice and beans. It was only seven days. These people's whole life was spent with very bland food. And so when Jesus said, you guys are like salt. He was saying, oh man, you make life different. You make it tolerable. You make it interesting. Christians, Christians are of great value in Jesus' eyes and they made the world tolerable. They made it interesting. Actually, they made it flavorful. Job chapter 6 and verse 6 says, can flavorless food be eaten without salt? Blech. No. You don't eat a lot of flavorless food. In Jesus' eyes, though, he's trying to say, and he just says it real simple. In, in our translation, y'all are salt. That's what he says. Y'all are salt of the earth. You make the earth taste different. You make it different all around. 
Salt is also a preservative. It's not just valuable, but it's a preservative. And salt preserved food. When it was applied properly to meat um, that was to be stored, salt would hinder the process of meat decay. If you want to understand how that works, uh, Brother Kirk can teach you a lesson on that because he's an expert in all this kind of cool stuff. Um, but, but salt hinders the process of meat decay. That's why you can buy beef jerky at 7-Eleven or at the Circle K. I always call it 7-Eleven because I was a kid and it was 7-Eleven. But at the Circle K, you can buy beef jerky. It's in a pack. That stuff's been in there a 100 years, man. I'm telling you. You can eat beef jerky that's a 100 years old and it still tastes just like it did the day they made it because it's so full of salt. And salt doesn't lose any of that power that it has to preserve. And so it just stays that way forever. So it's how people have lived for years without refrigeration. All the countries that don't have uh, electricity and refrigeration, even our country before we had the ability to have all that, guys would just ride around in their saddlebags with a whole bunch of beef jerky. Okay, And it was just fruit, meat that had been preserved with an enormous amount of salt. It brought out the flavor of the meat. It also preserved it so it would not decay. Now think about this. So it would not decay. You know what sin does to a culture? It decays the culture. You know why Jesus says you're salt? You're supposed to stop the decay of our culture. We're supposed to be such a seasoning into our culture that it stops the decay. D.J. Kennedy wrote a book a, a while back called, uh, in the 90, late 90s, uh, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born was the name of his book. What If Jesus Had Never Been Born. And in the early part of the book, he points out that all the hospitals that we know of today that, were found, that originally were founded in our country um, are the results of Christians seeking to give care to sick and diseased people. The Red Cross was born out of Christians wanting to start... Uh, helping people is an evangelical Christian movement. The first 100 colleges in the United States, the first 100 colleges were started by Christians who wanted to bring education into family life and help people um, grow up understanding science and understanding uh, religion and all those things. The first 100 colleges, now you can look back at a whole bunch of those and see how far decayed they have become. But uh, it's very amazing. The orphanages, the homes for the mentally handicapped, um, all were founded by Christians for the purpose of helping communities. They were developed by Christ followers who had great mercy on needy people. You understand that, that when, when Christ lived on earth and brought people to himself, it changed the entire world. Take all the hospitals off of the planet for a little bit. Just think about that. If there were no hospitals to go to, some of your family have been in the hospital in the last few weeks. What if there were no people that cared enough to learn science and medicine and figure out how to help you and then create a, a system that you can kind of plug yourself into, go there and get the medical help you need? What if none of that existed? What if it was just, hey, uh, you know, John's a veterinarian. I don't know what that is that's, you know, swole up inside you, but John's a veterinarian. I bet he'd cut it out for you. How'd you like to go back to those days? No. See, the, the, the salt of the earth, the Christians have influenced our culture dramatically, dramatically. The move to preserve life in the womb and life of the elderly is driven by evangelical Christians who know God loves every life. 
and counts life valuable. See, Christians, when they came on the scenes in large cultures, they went, hey, every life is important. That, that little boy that was born with a handicap, he's important. He's not thrown away. When I was in Uganda on the mission trip with the Wadiers, you know, there's a whole orphanage. Man, you talk about just an amazing ministry. There's a whole orphanage dedicated to just extreme handicapped kids. They're all in these... They literally are um, dollies, like, like human dollies. They're, they got these kids because they're trying to stretch their legs out and help them help their nutrition and all that work. And so they, they put them on like a dolly. It's got a little desk in front of them, but it's like a dolly, Mark. I don't know what they call that thing. Remember those? And, uh, but they can roll the, the child. He can go outside for a little while, then he can come back inside. And he's strapped to a dolly. You know, he's got a desk he can work off of. But instead of being in a wheelchair, he's on a dolly. And there's... A whole bunch of kids like that. It's just amazing to me to watch, to, to see these people who said, you know what? In our culture, those are throwaway kids. Almost every one of the kids in that, in that place, almost every one of them had been abandoned by their parents. That's how they ended up in an orphanage. His parents go, I don't know how to help him. He's handicapped. He's mentally retarded. He's, he's physically disabled. But the Christians in Uganda, salt of the earth, they said, oh no. That little child's valuable. We're going to create a place for him. We're going to raise funds for him. We're going to let him have a great place to live and stay and have fun. We're going to teach him things. See, that's what it means to be the salt of the earth. It changes everything. Now, the problem is, to be preservative, it means we have to preserve biblical values and moral values, and then we have to stand for them. Okay, so listen to me, salt, my, my salt friends. We are preservatives. But if we're not standing for anything, if we're not standing on the right values, we preserve nothing. We preserve nothing. Barna Research Group says that in 2016, the average Christian in the average church is almost indistinguishable from the rest of society. Listen to this. Okay, my millennial generation, please get this because we've got to change this. It's one of my most passionate things about Northside. We've got to help the next generation of children learn to be distinguishable from our culture. And the research says, this is Barna, which is a great research organization, a Christian research organization that studies thousands and thousands of peoples and churches and groups. The average Christian and the average church is almost indistinguishable from the rest of society. Barna goes on to say, in other words, we're living more like the world than Christ and therefore not making a difference. Barner goes on to say, the fundamental moral and ethical difference that Christ can make is how we live and how we live is missing. When our teens that we claim to be saved get pregnant and do drugs at the same rate as the general teenage population, in other words, when church teens and the general population teen statistics match, he says... When the marriages of Christians end in divorce at the same rate as the rest of society, when Christians cheat in business or lie and steal or cheat on their spouses at the same statistical level as those who say they are not Christians, something is horribly wrong. And what it is is that the only thing Jesus talked about was salt. When he said, y'all are salt, I'm using my... Southern English to help you remind you that he means all of us that are his followers. The nincompoop misfits that we are. We're his followers. We're salt. And instead of explaining the value, because he knew you would know instantly the value in his culture, 
That's what Romans get paid with. Man, if we had more salt, we could preserve more meat. We'd have a, a safer winter. Right? All that clicked in their heads real fast. So the first thing Jesus says is, but what if salt loses its usefulness? What if you lose your usefulness? Now here's the weird thing. And Kirk can explain this better than I can, once again. Salt can't use its usefulness. Whatever the NaCl, whatever that is, something chloride, am I right? Sodium chloride, that's the word I couldn't remember. Sodium chloride. You can't, salt doesn't go bad. Well, why is Jesus talking about salt going bad? Because in this culture it did because they would go get tainted salt. Now get this. You can do a lot of meditating on this this week. The, the people in Jesus' day would go to the riverbanks and, and to, the, to the, uh, the, the Dead Sea where all the salt really was the center of it. And they would get not pure salt. They would get salt that had a whole bunch of other stuff in it. And the little bit of pure salt you know, was eventually overwhelmed by all the other chemicals and made whatever you, you were putting what it was, they, they actually describe it in some of the commentaries I read. There's the, it's white, it looks crystals, it looks just like salt, but it ain't salt. It's just rocks. It's just powder. And so you put it all over your food and you go, hey, it's going to preserve our food, and then your food decays. And Jesus goes, you know what, when you find that, when you get a bag of that, and you start trying to save your food with it, or you start trying to season your food with it, and it's not any good, and you go, bleh. That tastes just as bad as before with the salt. He says, what do you do with that? You throw it out. You throw it out. It's not useful. You know, there's a place in 1 Corinthians 9 where the Apostle Paul says these words, and it's very powerful to me. It's one of the most frightening texts in the New Testament. I keep telling you about scary texts. This is one of them. Paul, 13 New Testament epistles in his hand. 13 times he's so clear with God so right in his heart that God says, I can write my words through your brain and your hands. And my, your letter to that church literally becomes my words. And that's a powerful connection with God. Okay, so the Apostle Paul, after his turn from being a bounty hunter trying to kill Christians to a guy that's trying to help people become Christians, he had a clear transformation, got very close to God. And all that happened, right? All that happened perfectly. But then he writes this to the Corinthians. He says, you know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of being discarded, put on a shelf. In 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about how uh, sometimes you can be disqualified as a Christian. And it's a word that he uses in the last, last couple of verses of 1 Corinthians 9. It's a word that he uses to describe uh, what they would do with pottery. When they would heat it up, they'd make the, the clay pot and all that and get all the mud just right and put it on the wheel and get it centered. And then they would put it in the the oven and bake it and bring it out. Well, sometimes there was an imperfection in the mud. There was an imperfection in the, you know, whatever the person had done. He'd gotten a little thin in one place or whatever. And, and while it was in the oven, it developed this little line. So when it comes out, it's a jar. It's some sort of jar that's supposed to hold liquid, but it's got this line in it. And you know, that's never going to work. I'm not putting anything valuable in there. And they would say that that jar was disqualified. And here's what the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul says. He says, I don't ever want to be disqualified, literally put on a shelf and can't be used. You know that every Christian, every salt person in this room, that's a possibility for us. If we let our culture dictate our values, when we let our culture dictate our values, Slowly but surely, we become useless in the culture. 
What's supposed to dictate our values is the Word of God. That's what's supposed to dictate our values. So salt becomes tasteless to Jesus um, and ineffective in that Middle Eastern culture. It became ineffective because it had been tainted. Well, how do we taint ourselves? We, with our culture. You let yourself get caught in this culture. It's why, I, it's why I want to do this series about the world and the church. I want you to see the comparisons of the two and show you here's how the church is supposed to live. Here's how our culture is living. Which one have you picked this week? And we're going to kind of begin separating some of that. Americans, what we need to do in America is we need to be committed Christ followers, not caught up in our culture, but living lives that are inspirational. Now, listen to me. I'm not talking about you know, doing some big song and dance in front of people. So, hey, look at you. Look at you, mighty Christian. No. I'm saying your life should be different. You should not have the same attitudes as the people at your work when things are going bad at work. You get a bad attitude, you look just like the world when that happens. Okay? Did that get on your toes? It did, didn't it? Because it gets on mine. You can't have a bad attitude at work when everybody else has a bad attitude if you're a Christ follower because you're looking to God going, hey God, you're doing something in our company, something with our boss, something with me, and I'm waiting to see what you're doing, but I'm not going to get a bad attitude. I may be hurt, I may be disappointed, I may be wounded, but I'm not going to get the same negative, critical, sarcastic attitude as the world had. I'm going to have different actions. I'm not going to have the same language as the people in my company. I'm not going to use that language because I'm separate from that. As Christ followers, we're separate. We should not have... When you have a rough day at work, as Christ follower, you should handle it better than the people that are having rough days that aren't Christ followers. See, there's supposed to be a difference. Everybody get that? You're salt. You're supposed to be different. If you're not different, you're exactly what Jesus warns them about. So when you have car trouble, amen, when you have car trouble, Brandon, supposed to be different. Supposed to be different. When you, when you, when you have somebody in your home is diagnosed with a sickness or a disease or symptoms that are frightening, we're supposed to, as Christians, look upon that, act upon that differently. Does it mean we're not afraid? No. You'll have the same fears as the world has. But you have somebody to take those fears to. Psalm says, what time I'm afraid, I will trust in you. Now when you live like that in front of your co-workers, when they go, so you, you're, you're diagnosed with cancer and you're still rejoicing in your God? Now they're looking at you. Now you're seasoning your workplace. You're supposed to handle your financial difficulties differently than the world handles them. And I'm just saying there has to be a difference. When we're living under the cross, when we're living under the gift of the cross, we're supposed to live like the cross mattered. We're supposed to live like it mattered. And He sacrificed a lot for us. You know what He calls His followers to do? These, these ADHD misfits that are following Him? You know what He calls them to do? Sacrifice. Sacrifice. So I really want to challenge you to do that. And I want you to watch this little video clip. Um, it's Jim Caviezel who played Christ in The Passion of Christ. If y'all haven't seen The Passion of Christ, shame on you. It's a great, it's been out for years now. It's plenty of DVDs available. Yeah, we're going to turn those out, Robbie, all of them. But I want you to see Jim Caviezel who played The Passion of Christ. He's being interviewed by a pastor. And he just starts talking about 
the call in a Christian's life to live differently. And, uh, and I want you to, to hear his words about sacrifice and about our country. You know, I look at not just our Lord's death, which was for all, but understand that the modern-day Christians, they say to me, but Jesus did that. Yes, true, he did do that for you. And so he did it, I don't have to. I said, okay, well, why did Peter have to then do it? And why did John have to do it? Why did all the rest of the apostles have to then? Well, why did they have to sacrifice themselves? Jesus had done that. What about all the martyrs of the 20th century? What about Christians that I've heard and, and done documentaries to where they were executed at the foot of Muslims that are executing your brothers and sisters right now? Where is our Lord with them? Does he hate them? We cannot continue as Christians to sit here and say, well, I'll only be a Christian if it's about pro prosperity. You know, that, that we have plenty. I, I want you to remember that when Herod, when Jesus goes in to meet Herod, he wouldn't look at him. Did I just do that because that was a choice? No, it was scripture. He wouldn't look at Herod. You don't have to go out and do a song and dance for seculars because they won't believe. They won't believe anyway. You can pray for them. That's the way it's going to be. But understand, people are going to choose evil, but you don't. And the devil is going to sift you out. He's going to look right now. Where are you weak? I can get this guy a million bucks and he'll turn. Ten million for this guy, fifty over here. But they'll all turn. They'll all say, well, choice. Choice. My freedom to choose. Every generation of Americans needs to know that freedom exists not to do what you like but having the right to do what you ought. If you want to look at it this way, the problem I see right now is the fact that many, many Christians have immersed themselves in paganism. They want to be cool to their Christian or pagan friends by being a little pagan so they can be cool. There's nothing cool in this. The only thing lacking in you, in you is that you don't, you don't want to be holy. Well, here's what will happen. We'll all come to task one day. And you either get a chance to lay it down for Jesus, or you'll get to deny him. But it will come in our generation this way. There are many things that you see on the horizon right now where you're going to have to make a choice. You will have to make a choice. I hear people all the time in Hollywood, they say, you know what, my agent just died and he was so embarrassed by his death, he didn't want anybody coming in because it was, it was very hard for those people to watch. Well, guess what, suck it up. We need Christians to go look death in the face and understand the next point, to encourage these people to understand that eternity awaits them. We're all going to die, the first death. Hopefully not the second. God never sends a man to hell. People choose this place. Yeah. Our democracy cannot be sustained 
without a shared commitment to certain moral truths about the human person and the human community. The basic question before a democratic society is this, how ought we to live together? And seeking an answer to this question, can society exclude moral truth and moral reasoning? Set yourselves apart from this corrupt generation, my brothers and sisters. You weren't made to fit in. You were born to stand out. That's right. Tremendous. Tremendous. Right now we're going through a time period where things are being stripped from us. And they will. And it's good. Because you understand, you don't need all the things that we've been given. They aren't your uh, given right. They're going to be stripped. We are living in this time right now where the world is going to be fasting and it's going to get hard before it gets better. But God, the people need to see God in you. They need to be a light because you need to be that light because they're going to see you and they're going to think suicide is the way out. But they see you. They want that. Hmm. This every day, the word of God. So it's a 160 piece orchestra. It's 5.1 sound like a movie theater. You feel the Holy Spirit go through you. The Word of God comes alive. And everybody's going to look at you and believe me, they'll be asking you, what, what are you on? You'll be on Jesus Christ. You have a... Yeah, yeah. We are, as Christians, are supposed to be salt. And then the second part that I didn't preach for you today, because it's just too obvious, is light. And he mentioned that. We are the light of the world. The light of the world. And uh, I'm just going to ask you, how much light are you bringing into the dark culture you're in? Or are you putting your lamp under that bushel? Are you just kind of secretly having your values? So um, as we close today, we got this one song to, to encourage you um, that you need the Lord to be part of your life. Amen? So when you sing this song, you sing it like you need Him. And uh, we need Him in our culture. We need Him in our country. Um, what can you do for America? The, the president asked us, um, ask what you can do for your country. You know what the greatest thing you can do? Is live very committed Christian lives that's set apart from our culture. That's what changes everything. Amen? Y'all stand together as we sing this last song.